you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to Ephesians 2. We've been in Ephesians now for a little bit. We're up to chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning there, I want you to multitask. And um, if you have visited the doctor this year, sometime in 2010, raise your hand. For any reason at all, okay? All right. Now, there, some people are laughing. Does that mean you go a lot? Or is that, I don't know what that means. But um, there's different visits to the doctor, right? Um, if I don't know if any of you have had this happen, but you know, there's, there's the kind where you go and, and it's pretty routine and you expect it to be routine and it happens to be routine. Um, but if you go to the doctor ever and they, and they bring you into an enclosed room and ask you to sit down and a doctor comes and he looks you in the face like this and he's really serious and he says, um, gets a little quiet and he just says, listen, um, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. At this point, your heart rate starts to go up a little bit, doesn't it? I've never, I don't know if a doctor ever says, I've got good news and good news. It's never like that. It's always good news and bad news. And you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, you start to wonder and worry a little bit. And uh, this plays out in TV and movies all the time, right? How bad is it, doc? You know, tell me. And here's this person in authority uh, that evidently knows the human body and has discovered something. And they're, they're here to tell you something, uh, something pretty serious. Well, what if he goes on to tell you that, uh, that you have this terrible condition going on in your body and, um, and you have less than a year to live if some things don't change? There's some vices that you have that if you don't give those up, uh, you will die within a year. And that's if you're lucky. If your diet doesn't change, if your exercise doesn't change. But, it, but aside from all of that, there's, there's a cure for this. So he's got your attention with this and then he says, but... If, and starts to lay out the, the cure for you, he's got your attention at that point, doesn't he? He suddenly has you in a place where you're like, I'm all ears. I want to know what, what to do with this. How do I bring my heart rate back down just from, from hearing this news? Um, here's what we're doing this morning. I kind of view this as Paul writing the book of Ephesians for us, and we're getting to benefit from it. And he's like a good doctor where he is sitting us down and he is not mincing words about the really bad news. And Paul doesn't mince words about the good news either. So he's going to sit down, he's going to kind of lay it out for us, and just give us what the scenario is. You wouldn't view Paul as a good doctor, nor would you view your own doctor as a good doctor, if he wanted to spare your feelings a little bit, and kind of soften it, and kind of make it more palatable for you. You would view that actually as a, as a bad doctor, wouldn't you? Because you go out feeling pretty good about yourself. You're like, oh, that was a nice visit. I'll be back next week. This is a nice place. That's not what you want from your doctor. You want the truth from your doctor, right? And even if it hurts, maybe especially if it hurts, you want your doctor to speak really bluntly to you. I would say that Paul is a good doctor because of this. The gospel simply means what? Good news, right? The gospel's good news. Um, but if you don't know the bad news, the gospel just becomes news. And we don't really need more news in our life, right? I've got several iApps that tell me the news. I've got a computer. I've got a TV. We've got news coming out of our ears. And what happens is, if you don't understand the bad news, the, the, the great news of the gospel becomes just like, ah, cool, good, good for you. That's interesting. And we just kind of receive it on that level sometimes. Now here's the kicker. Because we have a special thing going on next week, which I'm super excited about, uh, we're going to take a break from Ephesians for one week. 
Here's, here's some more bad news. We're going to talk about the bad news kind of today, and you have to wait two weeks to really receive the good news. So this would be akin to your doctor saying, I've got some terrible news. And he tells you it, and he says, come back in two, two weeks. We've got an appointment for you, and you can hear the cure and the rest of it. And you're like, Doc, you're killing me. Um, so that's a little bit what's going to happen uh, with, with this passage because of how we're happening to break it up. Okay? Um, this week, think of it as a little bit of a diagnosis, if you will. Let me ask you a question. Any of you, this, you don't have to raise your hands on this one, uh, but any of you witness any rebellion this week? Anyone see any rebellion? Just kind of run through your week for a moment and, and think about that. Parents immediately laugh because uh, they have children. And um, if you just do kind of a quick scan of the headlines, news in general, uh, you see a lot of rebellion, right? Primetime TV is pretty fascinated with rebellion and crime and things that are going on. And, and it, and it you know, tends to talk about really uh, rebellious kinds of things. Um, let me just kind of bring you back in time a little bit. Some of you will, will remember this face uh, of, of a guy that was all over our news uh, a long time ago uh, now because, uh, you know, we, we measure things in minutes. And he wasn't, you know, yesterday's news. He was like a couple years ago. But um, a guy by the name of Scott Peterson found out that, uh, that you can't run from your rebellion. Here he is trying to kind of hide who he was. There he is in court. And um, he was convicted of some things and accused of some things. And I remember just, you know, we watch these stories kind of go across our screen and, and we think about things. Uh, here was one from, from not that long ago. Sometimes rebellion is ridiculous. Uh, this is not a popcorn uh, thing that you make over the fire. Uh, this was Bubble Boy. And uh, many people watched in rapt attention. I don't think much work got done for one afternoon in America because we're all watching this balloon float around Colorado where we thought there was a kid inside. Remember this? And um, this all began with, you know, with Dad saying, uh, hey, Falcon, come here, I've got this great idea. And you're like, thanks, Dad. And uh, we learned a little bit about, about this guy, and it was a little bit bizarre. Some are still reeling uh, when the news broke that Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus are the same person. And we haven't been able to really, you know, we've gotten over the deception a little bit, uh, but it's been, it's been difficult. Uh, really, rebellion's closer to home than on our screens, isn't it? It's easy to look at other people's rebellion and say, those rebellious people. Man, they're, they're doing these different things. Um, it's, it's in our own homes, isn't it? Uh, if any of you looked in the mirror this morning, as you're shaving, as you're brushing your hair, whatever, you're looking back at it. It's really close to home. And that's where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. We have this saying that we say sometimes, and it's this, to err is human. To err is human. And usually we kind of say that sheepishly after we've blown it in some way, shape, or form. And in some ways, if you think about it, it's kind of meant to minimize things a little bit. Well, hey, I'm only human, right? That's another one. To err is human is kind of this this little clause in our language that says, look, we all make mistakes. There's another one. And uh, if you you look at our culture, if you look at our world, and you, you begin, you know, we have this great technology to look and study other cultures and get a little peek at that without even having to visit a country. Um, what you begin to realize, you go, man, sin is universal. And it really begs this question, why is sin so universal? Why is it everywhere? If, if in fact, sin, uh, for instance, is, is cultural, and it's something that, you know, we're, we're born basically good, which is a philosophy, a school of thought, if you will, and that, and that bad things are kind of added to your life as you go. How come no culture is getting this right? Anywhere. In any time in history. 
Every single culture has these allowances, these rules, these ways to deal with failure, with sin. Here's another question, and it's, it's, it's really important to our discussion today. Are people basically good, and is there any hope of getting better? Rob just pointed out this idea of school and the idea of striving and the idea of pushing harder. And if I can just, you fill in the blank. Is there any hope of getting any better? It also begs this question, where did, where did sin come from? Now, these are some really big questions. We're not going to try to tackle all of these today. But our text really lends itself to this whole discussion that's, that's under the surface of a lot of things going on in our, in our culture I would say this, that since the fruit of the tree is so universally corrupt, you have to go down to the root of it and say, what's at the core of this? Why is it that the fruit of mankind is destructive, is corrupt, is evil? Now, the Bible describes this as the fall, and we read about it in Genesis chapter 3. And the fall isn't just a matter of observation, where we can look around and see, man, that's evidence of the fall right there. That's evidence of, a, of, of, of mankind being corrupt at, at his and her core. It's not just a matter of observation. It's really a matter of divine revelation. And God's told us this is how the world is. And it runs counter to a lot of what we see and read and look at uh, in, in the world today. I want to read from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to do something a little different in that we're going to take chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then I want to jump down and read verses 11 and 12. And what I'm, what I'm doing with this kind of opening uh, part of chapter 2 is this. I'm kind of looking at what we were and what we are now in Christ. Now remember, who is this being written to? We covered this weeks and weeks ago. But Paul, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's beginning to roll out, by the way, how we have grace and peace. Because he's talking about matters of salvation here now. But remember that this is still one stream of thought, and it's to the church at Ephesus. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to Christians. He's writing to disciples of Jesus. So I want to paint that really clearly at the start as we read this, because it will be important for us to, to, um, to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Remember the scope of Ephesians in chapter 1? How God has this plan where he's, he's bringing into subjection and he's unifying all of the universe, not just the church, but all of the universe. That at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow. And it's kind of this large scope. Well, now Paul's painting a pretty large scope about this diagnosis, isn't it? You Christians, you once were on this same path as, did the rest of, as is the rest of mankind. Skip down to verse 11. Verse 11 says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's basically painting a picture to Christians saying, you were, past tense, dead in your sins. He says trespasses and sins, not to give two different ideas, but it's really the the massive scope of of what you once were. He uses this idea of walk. And walk is a metaphor for a lifestyle. You had a a lifestyle of rebellion to God. There are three enemies of humanity that he he basically paints for us in in the text here this morning. And we see these creeping up in other places in Scripture as well. Think about the world, the flesh, and the devil, our adversaries that are talked about. Well, here's three enemies of humanity that, that he brings up. One is the fallen world system. And in chapter 2, he talks about the the course of this world. And it's a really powerful reminder to remember that this world is on a course. It's on a path. There is a wisdom and a way that seems right to a large, vast majority of this world. And it's a fallen world system, according to the Bible. Number two, he says that you have an adversary, the devil or Satan. And he's called elsewhere the accuser. He's the ruler of this world. He's the God of this world, little g God of this world. Remember what we talked about last week? Where's Jesus Christ right now? Where is he? Yeah, he's seated at the right hand of the Father on a throne. And that one day, it's going to be kind of revealed for what's really going on, that he is above all rulers and powers and dominions, and everything will be brought into subjection under him. The Bible describes that for a season right now, the devil has some reign that he doesn't get to have for all of eternity. And it's still under the sovereign hand of God. Number three is mankind's fallen nature. Look at what we're called in past tense. You were sons of disobedience. What's your dad's name? Oh, my dad's name is disobedience. I'm his child. You get the picture? It's not really that pretty, is it? Sons of disobedience, and then scooting down, children of wrath. My mom's name is Wrath. So, you know, you've got these parents, and you're like, you're the sons of these things. You're the children of these. You were born into this. These are the enemies of mankind. There's a fallen world system. There's an active enemy at work in this age. And then the fact that we're born into sin. If I could let you walk away with one thing, and you don't have sermon note handouts here today, but you can write this. You could fit this somewhere if you'd like to write it down. But here's the gist of what's being said in this passage that I want you to walk away with. That all are hopeless and helpless. They're a part of a fallen mankind, separate from and in rebellion to God. Now, this isn't the Cosby show where we neatly tie it up in a half an hour. We're going to wait two weeks for the cure. That's what this passage is talking about. That's the state of every single person. But if, and we're going to get to the but if, cure part of things in a couple of weeks. But I want that to settle in on you. Uh, I've been a part of some services on Good Friday, and this wasn't a part of my tradition growing up uh, until more recently. Um, But there's something called the, the Tenebrae service. It's a service of darkness. And what it does, it takes... Uh, it takes the, the room or the building that you're in and through the scripture readings of the accounts of Jesus leading up to his death, it just starts to get darker and darker and darker and darker until actually you walk out in utter silence from this service and in darkness 
And that's how the service ends. And that's Good Friday. You know what it leaves you for? It leaves a longing, an anticipation of the bright celebration that is Sunday morning. And it began to, it began to draw into my mind my, my high school art teacher. He'd walk around as we're drawing. He'd say, lights and darks, people, lights and darks. And the, what makes art really good is that contrast. And what God's done is he's kind of painted this picture. And if we've glossed over the dark part, because we don't like death, we don't like dark, we don't like to talk about our sin, I want to start somewhere else. In fact, I don't even want to go there. I've been hiding that my whole life. But if you leave that there, tucked away, then the good news is simply news. It's really not good news at all. It certainly isn't great news. And it certainly doesn't change your life. This is the diagnosis we find ourselves. Helpless, hopeless, fallen, in rebellion. Now here's some questions raised for the modern reader. I hope that these, I hope that these percolate in your mind. And, uh, and some of you would say, I've already got answers for those because I've researched that, I've looked into that, I've, I've pursued that. But as you read this, and you've been soaking in Silicon Valley, you know, life, running 100 miles an hour, some of these questions might begin to pop into your mind. Are we really born rebels? I mean, I know the church teaches that. I know the Bible seems to teach Is that really true or not? Are we really born rebels? And if so, how bad are we? I mean, there's always someone worse, isn't it? We always jump to that person, right? I'm not Hitler. Good for you, you know? So uh, here's another one. Um, I think this is prevalent. So what if we are rebels? There's a certain part of us, we're going to get this in a little bit, but people kind of like the rebel image. They kind of like that. And they go, so what if I'm a rebel? You know? And they kind, of, they kind of wear that persona. Is there really saving needed here? Here's another kind of uh, roundabout question that, that, that bubbles up from this. And that is this. What, what confidence do I have? Ask yourself this. What confidence do I have in the gospel to save someone? What confidence do I have in the gospel to save someone? Do you see how the gospel now is totally tied to this idea of rebels and the whole idea that we're talking about with this? The follow-up question to that would, is the gospel really needed to proclaim, to, to, to be proclaimed in every land? I mean, will God take some really devout people who are just a little bit skewed on their theology, but they're really devout, doing amazingly good things, Will God take them and save them anyways and honor them, be pleased by them? That leads us to one more question, and that is this. Where does our righteousness come from? These are foundational, fundamental things that I would say impact your everyday life. Not dry, stuffy theology that kind of belongs talking about for a little bit on Sunday morning, and then you go back to your regular life. These are heartbeat questions that that play out in how you view your neighbor, in how you view yourself as you look in the mirror, in choices that you make, in strivings that you pursue. These things come and they play out. The word rebel is, uh, is from a Latin word that was originally used with references to a fresh declaration of war by someone who had just been defeated. That's what they would shout. They would shout this word. And from that, we took it and we used the word rebel. I was just up in a town uh, of Rough and Ready. Okay? Now, Rough and Ready is up near Grass Valley. 
And, uh, and part of the story of Rough and Ready is this. They were up there. There was really not a whole lot up there, a bunch of, a bunch of miners, really, seeking, seeking a fortune. And, uh, and they're up there, and they decided that they didn't like the, the ban on alcohol and the taxes that were being imposed from, from the union, so they seceded from the union. They decided to become their own country uh, right up there in the mountains, the foothills near Grass Valley, and they said, we're done with this, and, and they seceded. Well, then they found out they couldn't celebrate, get this, they couldn't celebrate in the 4th of July party anymore. So they took a revote and decided they liked being part of the United States of America. <laughs> now, here's the kicker, though. We drive into this town... And on the town, it says, Welcome to Rough and Ready. Seceded from the Union in 1850. That's what they lead with. We're rebels. We're the ones that formed our own country for a few weeks. Because we could. And that's what they put on their sign. It's like, that's how we identify ourselves. We're Rough and Ready. I mean, just a town, Rough and Ready, you know something's a little askew. But, uh, but, but that's what they identify themselves. And they, they kind of like that persona, I think. I mean, rebellion's everywhere. As you start to look for it, here's, here's a place to find it. You might be driving home from church today, and you could just look down at your speedometer, and you might see rebellion in play. I mean, just empirical truth that you just go, man, that's definitely rebellion right there. It's saying to the, the law, it's saying to the authority, I'm going my other way. Um, there's kind of a parallel passage here that, uh, that I want us to, to, to look at. Um, Romans 3.23. What does Romans 3.23 say? What are the first few words? For all have sinned. That's a really common verse to bring up when you're just sharing the gospel with someone. It's the starting point, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What we're talking about there, what we're, what we're putting out to people is, is a doctrine of total depravity. Which is, it's not, it's not taking little parts of us that are good and kind of forming them together and then offering something to God. Instead, it's acknowledging and having a starting point of saying, there is nothing good in me. My best righteousness, the best I could come up with, would be as filthy rags to God in light of His holiness. That has a lot of impact for church folk. Because church folk tend to walk out of here sometimes and we hear a message and we go, I need to do this, this, or this more. And the mindset might be this, in order that God will love me. In order that I'll stay in God's good graces. In order that I'll still be a child of God. What kind of torment and trauma would your children or future children be one day if that's how they lived their life, if that's how you parented them? That's not how God parents us. But that's sometimes what we walk away with. The Bible teaches uh, pretty clearly, quite clearly, that all of mankind is fundamentally corrupt. Unholy is the word, not spotless. In other words, we have spots. Man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. He is spiritually dead because by nature he is sinful. Let me read that again. Man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. He is spiritually dead because by nature he is sinful. And that's this idea that we were children of wrath, that we were sons of disobedience, that we were born into this. Romans chapter 5, I want you to turn over there for just a moment. Romans chapter 5 is a good parallel passage to this discussion because it talks about total depravity. It talks about the saving work of Christ, which is what Paul's getting at really in Romans chapter 2. 
And in verse 12, you find something kind of curious. It says this, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Talking about death that's in Adam and the life that's found in Christ. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is just reinforcing the universal nature of sin. That it's there in every single person. Back to that opening central truth that I showed you that's on the screen. But then it says this. Look down in Romans 5.20. Romans 5.20 says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law is given through Moses, right? God provides a written law saying these are the commandments, the expectations. Why is it that the law came in to increase the trespass? How can this be? How does the law increase sin? Uh, here's, here's how it does it. Basically, the sin, I mean, the, the law comes in and it incites sin in us to test it out, to test boundaries. People know this. I mean, you, you know this either within you or with rules that you have laid down. You lay down a rule and you say, look at me, do not touch this. What does that do in us? I wonder why not. I mean, I wonder what would happen if I taste that fruit. Ow! You know, you touch it, and it's a burner. And your, your parents are like, I told you not to touch it. I know, but it, it was red. You know, it's like it looks so inviting. And there's something in us that, that says, you know, here's the line, don't cross it. And we go, ooh, really? Why not? And it starts to, to stir things up in us. Thou shalt not awakens in us this, this natural-born rebel. Clint Eastwood has this quote. There's a rebel deep in my soul. Anytime anybody tells me the trend is such and such, I go in the opposite direction. There it is, summed up for us. That's the natural-born rebel in all of us. We express it different ways, but that's there, and it's living inside of us. Romans 7, 7 says this. Talking about the law. So what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law reveals to us the great failing that we have in ever thinking that we're good enough to measure up to God's perfect holy standard. I mean, this is the gospel 101, isn't it? But these are profound truths that we find ourselves once in a while still miring through in the mud getting cloudy in our thinking about such things. J.I. Packer said it this way, unless we see our shortcomings in the light of the law and the holiness of God, so in the light of the law and the holiness of God, we do not see them as sin at all. We minimize. We think in ourselves, well, I'm not nearly as bad as anyone in my entire family. I'm certainly the most honest person at my job. I go to church almost every single week. I'm in God's Word often. This can creep right into Christianity. This can creep right into the church. It just has dis different kinds of expressions to it. Wouldn't you agree that the gospel really is quite simple? I mean, the gospel is something that was explained to me at the age of six, and I completely understood it. And yet, on some level, I've, I've been pursuing the gospel now the rest of my life, and I'm approaching 40 this year. 
And I would say, man, there's, there are profound truths that I'm still uncovering. But the gospel itself is a really simple message. And it starts with all sin. Everyone does wrong. You know what I, had, you know what I did at six? I didn't defend that one at all. Because I had probably done something wrong about ten minutes earlier. No one had to convince me of that. I was six. I knew that. I hadn't been clouded into thinking that I was good in some way, shape, or form. All sin. The word rebel is both a noun and a verb. We are rebels, therefore we rebel. That's the picture that the scripture gives. You are a rebel, therefore you do rebel. It's born in you. The wages of this sin that everyone partakes of, drinks of, is death. And the gospel message is this, that we're saved from sin. Death, disobedience, separation, alienation, hopelessness, godless, and strangers. Those are in our text today, all those words. We're saved from all of that. We're also saved to life, eternal life, reconciliation with God, hope, and having God, having a relationship with God. Here's a powerful exercise. To think about people this week in these terms. We can look at people in all kinds of different terms, can't we? And we, little, we, we give little signals as to our little label for them. That person's in, that person's out. That person's smart, that person's dumb. That person's successful, that guy's a slouch. And whether we consciously do it or not, we make judgments about people. What if this was the filter that we saw every single human being for the next seven days, okay? That person is saved from the wrath to come, and they're alive. That person is spiritually dead and is going to face the wrath to come for their sin. Camp A, Camp B. The Bible makes it pretty clear. Every person you've ever met, every person that ever flashes across your screen that you've ever thought about in all of history is in one of those two camps right now. That's how the Bible paints it. Crystal clear. You're in Camp A or you're in Camp B. It's kind of an an image of, of spiritual zombies in a way. Spiritual zombies in this sense. Physically, everyone that you look at, well, this isn't true, but is alive for the most part, unless you're looking at a dead body. Okay, So for the most part, everyone you're looking at is physically alive, right? But the reality is that you could be looking at someone who's alive but dead. And that's what this passage talks about, is that you're looking at people who are, who are very much the picture of, of health, but they're dead. Doctors get this totally well. They see someone walking in totally crystal clear, but the evidence is undeniable. They're dying. And I have to break the news to this person who's been nothing but the picture of health their entire life. I have to break the news to them that they're dying. What's the most loving thing that doctor could do in that moment? Give them them the diagnosis. Say, buddy, you're going to want to sit down for this one. I know you look the picture of hell, but I'm here to tell you, you're dying. You are ravaged with a disease. And it's really serious. That's what Paul's doing to us here. Those who are dead are unresponsive. Done several funerals. 
And a dead body, it's the same every time. You could yell at it. You could put light to it. You could poke it with a pin. A dead person is unresponsive to all that stimuli. Spiritually, there's a course of this world. There's a prince of the air that's at work. And people are spiritually dead. Now, with a diagnosis like this, you'd think we'd run and call the doctor, but here's the picture that the Bible paints. It's the opposite. The doctor calls us. The doctor pursues us. The doctor awakens us to these things. And that's what we're really going to dive into in a couple of weeks. I want to kind of wrap up our time in the Word this morning with kind of the implications for this. I said at the front, this is really to Christians. This is being written to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, those who are alive. It's past tense. You were. And I want you to remember this, he's saying. He says, remember two times in verses 11 and 12 to remember these things. But let me speak to the non-Christian for a moment. Don't ignore the diagnosis. You know that what I'm saying is true. Even if you come argue with me afterwards and try to defend your goodness to me, you will lay on your pillow tonight and say, the reason that guy bugged me is because it's absolutely true. I've been trying to hide it. I've been trying to cover it up. I'm not pleased with this stuff going on in me. And that's why that guy bugs me. It's not me, it's God. That's the message God gives. And many in this room could attest to this scenario. We fought it, and we fought it, and we fought it. And the hound of heaven kept pursuing us and kept revealing to us, you'll never be good enough. It's not working, is it? And we try to shut it out with all kinds of different things. Do not ignore the diagnosis. You would think the person, a fool, who walks out of the doctor's office and says, what does he know? I don't even believe those charts anyways. And returns to life exactly how they are. And anytime someone in their family close to them who loves them and cares about them says, maybe you ought to look into this. I've been doing some research too. I think that guy's right. And you just shut your ears to it. La, 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 la. I don't want to think about it. My life's going great. We would look at that person. We'd have pity on that person. We would think that person a fool. Catch this. None of the problems associated with the human predicament, and by the way, there are many. Let me give you a plug for ways that, the, that this church, that this local body of believers is looking to just be the gospel in this community. We have a community garden that's flourishing back here. The vision for that, as many of you know, is to grow that and with these simple words, share the abundance. We want to share the abundance and use the natural uh, need people have for food, the natural interest people have in being fed to do what Jesus did. Take the simple natural and move it to the spiritual. That's the garden. Today's the last day for Operation uh, Christmas Child Boxes. You guys have responded overwhelmingly amazing. The person who's heading that up can't be here today because, by the way, she's in an orphanage in Mexico. We have things gathering over here, a growing pile of stuff for some homeless people that every year we go up to San Francisco. Uh, Next Sunday, if you want to come with me and my 13-year-old, I think we're the only two signed up yet because we haven't taken any sign-ups, come join us. We We had about 15 or so of us cruising around Uh, what during the daytime is filled with very expensive suits and very expensive cars, and right around 9 o'clock, a whole different world emerges up there. Uh, It's right near where the the Giants' um, festivities, when they won the World Series. I'm looking around, I'm going, guys, this is where we walk the streets at night. And there are people destitute and down and out. And we play hacky sack with them, and we pray with them, and we hand them a sweatshirt in the name of Jesus Christ. And I've never had a person 
in six years of going to this particular spot ever say to me, no, I don't want prayer. Every one of them wants to pray. Come with us next Sunday. You'll be involved in it. Uh, Help One Child is another thing going on December 18th. That's just caring for uh, Viv and Ron Rose are huge in the foster care community. And it's just giving to kids, pouring out love on kids. It's an event that's taking place. Uh, Viv would love to chat with you more about that. Um, this Mexico trip that's happening. Next Sunday, some things we have going on. Uh, one of the things in your bulletin that I want you prayerfully considering is we have a goal as a church to sponsor 25 kids through World Vision from one town in Ethiopia. We want to just do this as a church collectively. We already have one sponsor, by the way. It's a person who doesn't go to, to our church. And I just reached out to them. I said, hey, are you in for this? I, my, my brain went to this person. And they immediately wrote back, I'm in. So we have one down. We have 24 more to go. Whether you're sponsoring the child or you're going to go be an advocate and find a sponsor for this child, that's our goal, that's our prayer. But here's the picture. Of all those things that I just mentioned, those are pretty big predicaments, aren't they? No family. Estranged from your family for any number of reasons, living in San Francisco. Abandoned family in the foster care system. Whatever it might be, huge predicaments. No predicament is as huge as the alienation between man and God, woman and God. That is fundamentally and first and foremost the number one problem of mankind. If we were to be a church that did all the window dressing and addressed all these other things without ever proclaiming the gospel, we'd be a very unloving, uncaring, unbiblical church. Because that's like slapping little band-aids on cuts someone who's got a gaping wound. And so the, the passage here in Ephesians 2 is saying this. This is the gaping wound. Remember where you came from. Remember what you've been healed from. The Bible makes it clear that there's one mediator between God and man. One bridge, one connecting point that mediates between us so that we can be in relationship. And it's Jesus Christ. And that's really the simple gospel. 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in, in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now he goes back to this theme. Catch this. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. A lot of people quote this middle verse. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's sandwiched in between two things. If we say we have not sinned, if we say we have not sinned. You know what John was addressing? He was addressing this human component that says, not me. I'm not that guy. And it's as prevalent in the church as it is out the church. It just looks different. There's different name tags attached to it. But if we say we have not sinned, do not ignore the diagnosis. That's my plea to you if you're not a Christian here today. Verse 4, which we didn't get to today, but it says this. After this pretty dire situation of what you were. It says, but God. Don't you love that? Verse 13, right after verse 12, it says this, but now in Christ Jesus. That's what we're getting to in two weeks. There's a lot of hope in those but nows because it's talking about what God and and Jesus did for us. Now let me just uh, talk to the church for a second. Those who've received salvation and are in Christ Jesus This teaching was directed at you. You were these things. Remember these things. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, and this would be my uh, exhortation to us who, who would say, yeah, I'm in. I'm one of those. 
Second Corinthians says this, 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The Bible talks a lot about people who think that they're in, but they're duped into a false security. It's a false conversion. I'm not talking about praying a prayer, walking an aisle, having a feeling, attending a church. I'm talking about real conversion. I read this one author, and, and uh, kind of along these lines, he was talking about, here are some tests for a Christian. And I don't know that these are the Ten Commandments or the, the actual Ten, but let me throw them off you. One is this. Do you have a deep love and concern that motivates you to reach out to the lost? Yes or no? Number two, do you have a tender conscience before God? The Christian life is a life of repentance. God, once again, I look in this book and I look at myself and I see a a big gap. Would you forgive me? Would you work in me? Number three, do you read the Bible every day longing to hear from God? Yes or no? Number four, do you love other Christians and enjoy their company? Number five, do you gossip or listen to it with glee? Number six, do you put your trust in money? It says right on there, in God we trust. Maybe we've got that wrong sometimes. Number seven, do you fail to keep your word or tell white lies? Number eight, do you take little things that belong to others? Number nine, do you pray only when things go wrong or when you need or want something? And number 10, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Jesus is talking one day and he says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then what do they do? They list their resume. What does it involve? Good works. Them at the center. Where the gospel turns all that around and says it's about Christ and his work. We're to make our calling and election sure. Now, for those of you who, who say, I'm in. I know it. I've been converted. I may have even thought I was a Christian for a long time. And finally, someone came along to me and looked me in the eye and said, are you a Christian? And I got all huffy and nervous and mad at him because I'd been in church for a long time and said, well, what do you mean? But then humbled myself and really became a Christian. And man, these last three years of church attendance have been so different than the previous seven years of church attendance because I'm a Christian now. I'm converted. God's given me a heart of flesh. Here's what I would say to you. Whisper a prayer of gratitude often slash always for being saved from what you were. This passage ought to read like a praise chorus for you. With every breath, as it says, sons of disobedience, you ought to say, yes, Lord, and then just exalt in the fact that, that of what you know to be true, that you're no longer in that domain. That you're, you're no longer alienated. That you now have a hope and a future because of Christ that's at work in you. I also want to say this. I want you as a church to reinstate, recapture, or repair your view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel... Not ashamed of it. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. 
think some of us have lost confidence in that. Or like I say, it's in disrepair. We've lost sight of how good the good news is. Another thought along these lines would be to boldly give away the cure. Not to is the most unloving and most selfish thing you can do. To do so is the most loving and selfless act you can do. Here's what's what's at play, though. There's a course of this world that continually tells you a message. How dare you tell me what to do? You're being unloving by trying to impose your truth on me. You're intolerant. You're bugging me. You ought to mind your own business. You're not that great anyways. You start to hear something long enough. You know what sometimes starts to happen? You start to believe it. That's why you come back to the Word every single day. Say, Lord, wash my mind with the, with the water of the Word. I need to think straight about things because I've been told something different all day long and it's beating me down. You come back and you say, no, actually the most loving thing I could possibly do is risk our friendship and put this out there and wait for the punch coming back verbally or physically. Because I love you, I'm going to keep doing this. Boldly give away the cure. Two more things and then we'll be done. Ben, why don't you come on up? Put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3 says, For it is we who are the circumcision, who, who, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. The power of God to save is in the gospel. You were all these different things. We sang this line this morning that you choose the weak to lead the strong. If you ever ever doubt walking forward, think of Moses. God, I can't. I'm slow of speech. I can't do this. You know what God says? Who made your mouth? I mean, is it too big of a thing for me to use you as a mouthpiece if I make mouths and everything else? Allows us to say, okay, Lord, you're right. I, for some reason, think I'm at the center of this. That I'm at the core of this. That I'm somehow going to save anyone. God says, don't put confidence in the flesh. Whether for your own righteousness or to save and help other people. Put confidence in me. Put confidence in the gospel. Finally, last one is this. A passage like this ought to produce real, sincere, deep-seated humility in every single Christian in this room. A deep-seated humility that says, you know, not, not such, as, such were some of you that some of you were kind of bad. Every one of us was born a rebel. Therefore, we've rebelled. So God's saving us out of that is all His doing and not ours. You were either saved out of an overt rebellious lifestyle or kind of a more uh, covert rebellious lifestyle, but you were saved out of a rebellious lifestyle if Christ Jesus got a hold of you. I want to sing some songs now together as a church family and I, I hope and pray, well, here's, my, here's my hope, is that as we sing, we have a confidence in our God. That as we sing, we have um, a real reason to celebrate. As we sing, because we, we look back on who we once were. And for those who say, man, it's embarrassing, I've been coming to this church for a while. What would Dave think if I came up and said, gosh, I'm kind of one of those who, who's been attending, but I don't, I don't think I've really ever received salvation. I've never repented. I'm not in Christ Jesus. 
If you were to walk up to someone in this church and say that, far from being shamed, far from being put down, you'd be welcomed in and say, well, let's walk through it. Let's talk about that. This is the most important day of your life. Don't let it pass up. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the law that was given. As one translation says, to be a schoolmaster, to to lead us to a place of utter hopelessness in realizing that we can't measure up. God, I just ask that in this place this morning as we lift up praise to you in song, that Spirit, you would be at work in sons of disobedience, in children of wrath, and in those who are now children of the King, who've been brought from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light by the mediator, Jesus Christ. We take huge and great comfort and confidence and we find our hope in the reality this morning that Jesus, you are on your rightful throne and that you're at work interceding for the saints. God, we give you this morning, we reaffirm and refresh our commitment to you as your people. We love you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.